I don't think you can call yourself sustainable unless you consider the entire life cycle of the product. So that is farm to landfill, essentially. And I, and I think there isn't a lot of in-between. So it's very convenient to fall in like one stop along the supply chain. But essentially, our product represents that entire life cycle, and we should own it. Welcome to Mindful Business Founder the podcast for fashion business founders seeking to build a meaningful and profitable business. I'm Liki Tang, and I'm here with you today to find out how mindful founders build strong businesses that deliver value to people and to the planet. Mary Marland is a fashion business owner who has left her job as an investment banker to launch her brand Wild Doves. In this insightful conversation, Mary will tell us how waste in the infant wear industry inspired her to start her own business. Of course, we'll be talking a lot about waste, but also we'll hear how Mary went down a real rabbit hole when she started sourcing and asking the real and sometimes uncomfortable questions. Among many other things, Mary will also tell us about the different types of materials, what's behind the certifications, and why her brand is gender neutral. As you will notice, Mary is a true shaker in the industry. The business she's building would spark an ineluctable fire in this massive industry that needs a real transformation at every step of the value chain. I've learned a lot in this fun conversation with Mary Marland, and I hope you will too. Hi, Mary. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Can you describe the world you want your children and even your grandchildren to live in and maybe to thrive in? I think it would begin with conscious living. So what I mean by that is deliberate, thoughtful choices based on personal values, um, whether it's a consumer or a citizen or a colleague or a business owner or a parent, considering the impact of our choices. I think generally, if you follow that as a personal value, it leads to a safer and more empathetic world. So I think that that is what I would bring to that for my children. Yeah. So what I hear is safer and more conscious word. Yeah. Deliberate. So a lot of times we make choices out of habit more often than not, and we're led and we don't lead. So, you know, the whole sense of conscious living is about being thoughtful and deliberate about our choices. And when you start to do that, if you don't realize you have a value system, you you start to cultivate one. And that's an important part, I think, of being in a community. You can do it micro or macro. It could be in a family or it could be in a large organization or a citizen within a municipality or a state or, you know, within our own countries and the world. So... In general, I think consumerism has gotten a little off track related to conscious living. And so is that the reason why you've created Wild Doves? Well, initially I created Wild Doves because I saw a gap in the children's apparel market, a very specific gap that we can talk about. But in the process to create my products, I was led down a path about consciousness and how fashion and sustainability intersect with this overarching sense of conscious living. You know, I myself couldn't find answers to questions I had about process of products I bought. 
In the preparation discussions that we had, you mentioned that you started Wild Doves when you got your first child. Yes, that's right. Can you tell us the story? Yeah, so um, seven years ago now, <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I had my first child and um, I was looking for a particular product because at, you know, in the, in the U.S., we do, many families do these baby showers. Oh, it okay. exists, you know, a lot of, um, a lot of the countries in the world do them, but at different times, some, some places do them after the baby, some places do it before. Traditionally here, you do it before. Mm-hmm. I had a ton of clothes for the first year. And what I found is after that first conventional size, which conventional sizing in infant wear is basically four sizes, zero to three, three to six, six to nine, and nine to 12. And for preemie babies or premature children, you have something even before zero to three, newborn and -hmm. newborn sizes. So I didn't get to use at least half of the clothes that were given to me. My daughter outgrew them so quickly that we couldn't use them. And I just, I had her on the changing table and I thought to myself, this cannot be that hard. She only will grow (laughs) a couple inches in a year. What does that represent? And so I took a closer look at it and I started searching for this product. And essentially what it, what it led me down is to try to create a, a product that lasts a little longer. And then in that process, I learned all kinds of other things. And um, I obviously oversimplified the idea mm-hmm. <laughs> initially, thinking, oh, I have an idea. How hard can it be? Yeah. Um, and, <laughs> and in that journey, I was certainly schooled <laughs> on, on the process. But um, it was a, it was a, it was basically solving for a problem. Mm -hmm. And in that process to solve for the problem, I went down, you know, essentially a rabbit's hole of learning and here I am. Okay. And so you solved the problem by simplifying the sizes of, of a newborn and baby wear. Yeah. So, so there's a waste issue in fashion for sure. And if you look at infant wear on its own, most people treat infant wear as disposable wear. That's true. Yeah, that's true. Because they wear it a couple of days or maybe a couple of weeks and then that's it. And it gets stained and children are messy and you have all kinds of things that I don't, I'm sure our our listener base doesn't love to talk about. Mm, (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so you have, and a lot of people like white on their babies. And so um, you, you have to start making choices to use things like chlorine bleach or how do you most people don't even know how to take care of their clothing they don't use fiber brushes they don't use stain you know they spray it with what in the u.s they we, the big brand is shout you spray it with like a shout or tide or something you throw it into the wash and if it doesn't come out up that's right that away no longer be used you throw it away and um and so that you know that doesn't address that whole entire problem but if you create a quality product and you create a product that can last longer can we start to reset how we think about clothing um you know for many generations of families would put natural fiber on their babies and i know that my grandparents used to say it's breathable that term breathable and so i find that fascinating um now because increasingly you see that sliding away the sense of health basically health related to fashion for our babies. Um, and it's all interconnected. So, you know, in terms of the quality of the product usually also has properties 
that are better for us health-wise. Basically, when I looked at the, the issue of not finding a product that's adjustable that only lasts three months or less, that led me down to just looking at waste as a whole. Like, oh my goodness, we are just throwing away these baby body suits. <laughs> yes, the, the waste problem is a real problem for baby infant wear, but you mentioned a waste problem much larger than this in general. Can you explain a little bit? Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, I think it's important to say there's no such thing as zero footprint. Everything we buy will have a footprint. However, there's a significant upside in doing a lot more because we're essentially doing almost nothing. So if the post-life stage of our products is almost entirely hidden from the general public, when you buy a product, whether it's a consumer product, fashion product, home goods product, although I, I've never seen a study that gives a real statistic, I would say almost 100% of those people do not actually know what happens to their product at end of life. And so you have an assumption base. You assume, ah, there's someone that's taking care of that. And that's another person's problem. And they feel comfortable about that because they're not facing it. So, I mean, for me, I don't think you can even discuss sustainability without considering the waste impact. And the reason is because we are way over our heads with it. Um, there's an incredible amount of misinformation on the topic. In the U.S., waste management is heavily regulated regionally. Mm -hmm. So there is no, you know, the EPA oversees municipal waste management, but on a very high level, whether your local municipality has recycling or composting, and whether there's even a secondary market participant, it's all managed locally and it's mostly privatized. And technology is not standardized across the country, across regions. It's the same in Europe, it's the same in Asia. You know, it, we don't have a standard global for managing waste, and there isn't a general audit on it either. And so, you know, it's also a big industry. And I think I, being that I had a banking background, I can't help but throw that in because money does make a big difference in, in every industry. So in the U.S. alone, it's a $60 billion industry, earning industry. The waste, waste. management. The waste. All types of wastes. All types of wastes. So it's $60 billion. It would be its own really interesting initiative to take a look at where to break that down. Those, those numbers are only high-level numbers available. But, uh, you know, that is a very interesting number. And what's more interesting to me is that in 2018, our biggest essentially taker of our secondary market waste was China and they stopped taking it. And when that happened, if you look at how recycling has changed in the 50 states, it's incredibly upsetting. A lot of, a lot of states actually stopped recycling altogether. Stopped recycling. They have nowhere to put the trash. They just stopped. It becomes municipal waste. When you take a look at the waste management challenges that we have in this country, it makes it essentially impossible to talk about sustainability without considering waste. Hmm. And that seems to be something that is, um, we need a lot more awareness around. So the reason I dug into that is because I have a product, an agricultural product that's 100% natural, and I can prove my entire supply chain. So I went to my local compost, my local recycling facility, which we also compost here, and I asked them if they could compost the waste. And they said, no, they couldn't. 
And so that led me into a number of other questions. And essentially, even though fashion fiber can be 100% natural, I have yet to find a municipality that would compost it with their other composts because fashion is so loosely regulated. You know, we do have certifications in fashion in different stages of the product life cycle, the supply chain, but there isn't an, an overarching audit essentially of it. And so we don't want, we don't, we being, you know, compost facilitators do not want to mix fashion with food. And so that in itself was a big statement. Wow. So what do I not know <laughs> about this? And I've pressed on that a lot, actually, because I think it's, I think it's critical. I, we, you know, if we're making as part of understanding waste management, something that's fully biodegradable, why are we not allowing it to fully be biodegradable? Why would we put it in a municipal waste for something that could take, you know, two weeks to fully break down? putting it into a landfill could take a hundred years and create all kinds of havoc with carbon emissions. And, you know, that, that conversation can go on and on. And so, so what do you do with your fashion waste? So at this point, I just, I'm, I'm still new at this, but I'm offering to take back the waste and, you know, it's not scalable in a, in, a, in terms of a large scale, but for where I am right now as a small company, I actually do have an advantage to be able to handle it directly. So I'll, I simply compost it. You compost it yourself? With my compost. Yep, at my house. And it breaks down. It's cotton. It's 100% an agricultural product. It's a flower. <laughs> I mean, unless it's, and if it's treated with chemicals, that impacts it. But my stuff, yeah, it composts. My argument is that natural products should be treated with a natural waste plant. And if we can't do that, we have a, we ha it should highlight, you know, and I'm not sure who the right, regulatory authority is since it's so fragmented, but it should highlight that we have a gap and something that needs to be solved for. So that's the full cycle. Yes, I think so. And I think the fact that we don't have an answer for that for many of our products at home that we use is highlighting a, a growing problem that's, that's quietly growing. And, you know, it's a bigger question. Why is it quietly growing like I can't help but look at the number and say, hmm, I can see it's, an, it's a money-making area for, for some very big companies. Yes, definitely. I think so as well. So you said that you compost your, your products once it's used. And so it... Yeah, and, and repurpose, of course. And of course, we, and we of course want second life products. So the use, you know, one thing that I've learned that the, the millennial generation seems to be more interested in than previous generations even is this whole secondhand, second life. So do you have a resale market or something like that? Starting in the spring. So I'll have, a set, I'll have a resale market where you can buy the products if they're in good enough shape to resell for a fraction of the price. Um, and I'll also have a take back program. And I'll do that as long as I feel like I could sustain that. And then when I can, I'll have to revisit. I'll have to think outside the box and continue to, to look at ways in which we can be responsible for the life cycle. So I think it, it cannot come down to consumer to consumer because it's simply not, it's not in our DNA. Like I mentioned before, uh, the normal consumer does not consider that part as their responsibility. They do not consider waste as something that is their responsibility to handle. And we can talk about why that should change all we want. But at the end of the day, I feel responsible for the product that I contribute to creating. And that's part of being conscious. 
Yes, I think the the everybody has to take their own responsibility, and if the consumer doesn't feel responsible, it's the role of also the brand of of the manufacturer to say that you're not aware of it or it's difficult for you to treat it in a good way. So I'm going to help you. So I'm going to offer a, a program, a repurposing program, or a waste picking program, or something like that to help them. Sure. Yeah. And there's some elements, like there's some pieces of my of my products that I've already designed into the next collection. Little things like reinforcements on the knees. Those are usually components of your fiber that you could use scrap very easily. So wherever possible, I'm trying to build that in. But it does become its own initiative for sure as part of my business strategy. And my hope is that even raising that I'm doing that brings awareness an increased awareness for the consumer because that is a huge step forward. I, I don't know. I've, I, it's so rare to even find a brand discuss waste. And when I have seen it, unfortunately, I do see a lot of misinformation as well on that. Um, That's a problem as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's important to highlight that whole recycling conversation because, you know, the truth of the matter is you cannot recycle a petroleum-based product multiple times. I've never come across a facility that has the technology to do that. So if you recycle a, if it's heavy enough, a petroleum-based fiber could potentially be recycled into something else once. But then after that one time, you still have a product that we don't have a sustainable waste plan for. It's not biodegradable. It can't be recycled. It's basically a forever product. And so I find because most fiber has now gone synthetic, I find that fascinating. So the, the, the brands that offer almost entirely only synthetic products are the ones that are highlighting the waste. They're pushing recyclable. And uh, I mean, from my own research, I haven't found that to be true, actually. I, I think it's gone its course, frankly. I think that whole conversation, you know, initially sustainability using synthetics was the argument was, well, agricultural wise, water usage, it's, you know, synthetic man-made products are actually better for the environment because we're not having that agricultural footprint. And, but I, I, and I think that made sense probably at a certain point, but now I think the balance is tipped the other way again. And I think that we should be looking at natural um, in a different way. There's a huge difference, as an example, between conventional and organic cotton. Huge. Yeah. Yes. So what is the type of fabric of material that you're using in your collections? Yeah, organic cotton. I'm using 100% organic cotton. No blends, which is harder to break down, even if you have 2% spandex in something. It makes it very difficult. You can't compost that anymore. So yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really difficult to separate fibers. And that's important when we look at cotton polyblends. Even though there's some natural in it, you can't separating those fibers is actually really difficult. And not a lot of facilities can do that. And the likelihood that your product will be on that list to be done is unlikely because we know that a lot of products and a lot of fashion ends up in landfills. So you use organic cotton and why not hemp or bamboo? Great question. Well, you know, organic cotton has been around for thousands of years. It's a flower. Organic farming does things that it's, I mean, it's a complete, it's so different than conventional cotton. But when we talk about cotton, 
I found overwhelmingly we think of conventional cotton methods. So GMO, um, high amounts of chemicals used throughout the entire agricultural process. Organic cotton is used as a rotational crop. Every part of the flower is used. Um, there's been a tremendous amount of advancement in terms of using technology. Um, and, and I have only looked at two sectors, India and the US, but both of those have made a lot of advancements in terms of water usage and oversight. It's not perfect, certainly, because again, there's a footprint. But hemp, we don't have as much access to hemp. It's much more expensive. It's also a heavier fiber. Yes, it is, yeah. But hemp is probably dominant. It's more rough as well. Yeah, isn't it? that's right. And I'm, and I'm dressing infants. But hemp as a sustainable fiber, I would say is definitely more sustainable than any other fiber I've come across. It's just not perfect for my products at this point. So I have looked at hemp cotton, organic cotton blends for my toddler line and my maternity line. Um, and I'm continuing to look to source there. But organic cotton versus bamboo is not even comparable. And that's actually something that um, I also, I've been, I was really surprised. When I first started this process, I looked at bamboo viscose because, you know, it's stretchy. I understood it to be natural. And it grows fast. Yeah, it's soft. Yeah. Yeah, so bamboo is sustainable up until just the agricultural side, the cultivation side. So it grows quickly. It doesn't require mm. chemicals and pesticides. Sounds very good. Yeah, it sounds very good from an agricultural side. But to make it into fiber, it's all chemical. So viscose is rayon. That's what it means. And I learned that because I was sourcing. I was trying to, I was speaking to Mills directly. And I asked, well, what is, why does this say bamboo viscose? And they said, well, it's viscose. So I looked into the viscose process. It's readily available to anyone that wants to look at it. It's all chemical. And you cannot call bamboo viscose a natural fiber, actually. And the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission in, in the United States, if you go on their website and you type bamboo, you'll see about 50 articles on the topic. I was surprised as both a consumer and also a brand that I had been seeing over and over and over again that this fiber was a natural choice and it wasn't at all. And so, you know, I, I think that that highlights our lack of regulatory updates, I would say. You know, the, the FTC is a reactive agency. They tend to not investigate things or go or or approach companies on their own. Someone actually has to take the initiative to report a mismarketing. But I see it all the time. I don't think as a parent and as a brand owner, I don't think that that fiber choice would be appropriate for children in any way. So even when you say, and this gets probably to the certification, so organic as a term is related to the agricultural side. So, you know, you have GOATS, Global Organic Textile Standard, that looks a little further down the supply chain and to review chemicals, and, and it looks at the fiber manufacturing. So, as in the, the most important aspect there is the dyeing process. Um, you know, you can't have acrylic dyes on an, and still label it GOATS. It has to be water-based. Um, Okitex is another one. And that looks at harmful substances. What makes that a little different is it's specific to harmful substances to human health. And, you know, they have different certifications. The most popular is 100, the Okotex 100. Um, 
the fact that we have that certification at all highlights how much we really don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it's incredible, but I, I think people, you know, I see a lot of hundred percent organic bamboo. And then I look at the label and it says bamboo viscose. Yeah. It's very misleading. It's incredibly misleading. And, and frankly, as a consumer, not even as a brand owner, as a consumer, it should stop. So I couldn't, I, I love the idea of the sustainable agriculture, the bamboo is introduced, but I would say it's better suited for, you know, other sustainable uses such as, you know, the plate, you know, things that we can use a hundred percent bamboo for. It, it doesn't seem to be where it should be in terms of fiber. So how do you navigate between the labels and uh, those who are telling you the truth or those who are playing on the misleading parts on the label? How do you select your manufacturers? You say that you're talking to mills and... Great question. And so you've been, you must have been talking to a lot of people. Yeah, I have. I've been at this now for four years, actually. So the first year, I went to a couple of the, the large U.S., New York, and L.A.-based sourcing expos. So you go around and there's representatives from all over the world and they're 90% of the time distributors. They're not the mills themselves. But when I was asking questions, I wasn't getting answers. Well, where is this grown? You know, most people don't ask that, <laughs> but mm -hmm. not just country. Do you know, do you have a view of the supply chain? Is there any transparency? And because I'm so small, I have the luxury of that. Yes. So my needs are minimal still. You know, a bolt is a lot for me. So I, I don't need, I can do that. A large company, it's a completely different story. It's, it would be, it's a completely different undertaking to have a fully transparent supply chain. And I know there are some big brands that are moving in that direction, but there's really no excuse for a small brand. Mm. You should absolutely be able to identify where it is. So I source... Um, my fiber from a small mill in North Carolina who has a fully transparent supply chain. They will tell you where the farms are. And so it is, you know, their gin, the, the farm to gin to mill, the dye house and the distribution is all very close together. Now, whether or not that's sustainable, if I become a very big company, which I hope would be a good new problem, it doesn't change it as a Um, an item that I have to reckon with. I should know every element of my supply chain, I think. Um, as soon as you start handing it off to jobbers and distribution agents, although that's an important part of the, the business, you start losing insight into how things are done. And then indirectly, in accountability goes away. Yes. So I had to start, at, it started backwards, essentially. I asked questions, I couldn't get answers. And then I started working my way and learning about fiber manufacturing. And that's another thing. We don't even include that on our label. And it's not specific to the U.S., the whole world. We include fiber content, but we don't include any of the fiber manufacturing information. And that's incredible to me, actually. Yeah. Because there's four stages of fiber manufacturing. It's its own supply chain. I guess it's because it's not required. And um, when it's not required, there's no transparency. That's right. And even when people volunteer it, who audits that? It's incredible to me that we have such a big industry that's been so loosely regulated. So when it comes to infants, though, I care because I was a parent myself. 
I wanted to know. And you're still your parent yourself. And I'm still a parent. And I still, I still pay attention. And, and the other thing is in this day and age where we have, you know, we have the internet. If you want to know what goats means, it's a click away. <laughs> the yeah. global organic textile standard. I mean, all of this information is actually accessible to us. It can be overwhelming though. There's a lot of input and influencers that comment on it. And it is tricky to know where to go for real fat. So you have to, you know, you, for me, I mean, the U.S. is regulated by the FTC. So when we, when we look at products, we start there and work our way backwards, essentially. But um, yeah, it is, it's, a, it's a fascinating um, look when we look at fiber manufacturing on its own. So it seems that there are a lot of trade-offs uh, that you have to face when you own a fashion business uh, to, in order to be and to stay a sustainable business. So what would be your definition of a sustainable fashion business? I don't think you can call yourself sustainable unless you consider the entire life cycle of the product. So that is farm to landfill, essentially. I like your answer. <laughs> yeah, and I, and I think there isn't a lot of in-between. So it's very convenient to fall in like one stop along the supply chain. But essentially, our product represents that entire life cycle, and we should own it. And I mean, that will be a slow process because of how loosely regulated every step it is and how information is hard to come by. But um, as part of conscious living, I think that hopefully that'll be a growing trend because I think as people learn what they don't know, it changes their behaviors for buying. And so I understand that your attitude is to be as transparent as possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's, it's important and it's tricky as a business. That would be a trade-off. You know, I've even thought about, um, you know, being transparent to the point of even providing cost information. But for me, since I'm just starting, it's really tricky because I know my cost basis, hopefully with scale goes down, you know, that's basic business 101. So if I can order more, I pay a little less per product. And so the, I'm in flux. So um, I probably won't be able to do that. I would expect for at least a couple years, but I'm going to try. It is an agenda. It is like a, I think it's additive. I think um, it's tricky because it's also competitive information sharing where I get my fiber. I might not have access to it if a big company <laughs> starts using, yeah. you know, things like that. So there's some competitive, you know, keeping some of the information close to you is part of a competitive advantage, but I think it would provide an advantage over, um, you know, thinking of it as a competitive advantage, but the trade-offs would be accessibility. So when you buy higher quality items, in your supply chain, you're going to be paying more for them, which in turn makes the product cost more. And so that makes it less accessible to people. And then you don't grow as quickly. And things like awareness, people might not know of wild doves as fast as I would like them to, because I don't just don't have that marketing budget for that, because I have to charge more per item. And it's just a big cycle. So it'll just take a little longer. I think the other trade-off is, um, you know, I am assuming everyone, my consumer base will all be conscious consumers and they care about <laughs> my business philosophy. But the reality is statistically, if you look at the big brands that are big, they don't share any information about their product. 
and they don't share any information about the manufacturing of it either. So the trade, we haven't even talked about that, but like the workers and the, you know, what their philosophy is, even if they have one. So it's very rare to see a big company even explain what it is. Yeah. So the, the trade-off there is that we are essentially preaching to a consumer base that may not care. And so that takes time and it takes um, persistence, I think, to get people to a place where they don't have to feel guilty of their purchases, but instead get incentivized. But there's a growing movement towards that. Yeah, and I hope so. And I hope it grows faster, honestly. <laughs> Because we don't have any waste management in this country anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you need to deal with that problem. Yes, yes, definitely. Before we move on to the next part, I saw an interesting post on Facebook, I think, this morning uh -huh. or yesterday. You posted something uh, that is gender neutral. Yeah. Can you tell us about this concept in infant wear? Yeah. So it wasn't until the 19th century that we started creating boys and girl clothing. Oh, really? Yeah. So it was it all, at least in Western culture, all infants were infant gowns. They were almost always white. Um, it, there wasn't a specific blue and pink. So just to create more sales, it was more of a PR campaign. That's so interesting. So, you know, they, they started creating pinks and blues and um, genderizing baby wear. And the reason that matters to me is because I found myself again in a, in a personal situation where I had a boy and then I had a girl and I couldn't find anything <laughs> that wasn't pink. Everything I got basically was pink. And every, if you go to a store and, and, and if you look at how boys and girls are dressed differently, It's a whole kind of, it's a fascinating in itself. Um, I, you go to a big department store, the little girl section is three times as big as a little boy section. We, you know, we, we doll up our little girls. I find it important because it also plays into this whole conversation of consumerism and waste and also already telling our children what they should and shouldn't be from the very onset. How we dress has a big impact on how we feel actually and what it says about us culturally. So making a little girl super sweet, super, you know, um, petite, dressing her in the little dresses, um, being wary of her falling down and letting our little boys wear these like hardy clothes that they can slide around in the mud and jump up and down. is kind of furthering these gender stereotypes before they even get an opportunity to come into their own. And so, you know, I, I think it's just practical to have infant wear day as gender neutral as possible. So all my clothing is gender neutral, meaning I'm not directing it to a consumer to buy for a new baby girl or a new baby boy. I have accessories like in colors that are maybe a little atypical. So instead of pink, like coral. So, and I play with a lot of teal and aquas and yellows, colors that might not be perceived as overly feminine or overly masculine. Mm -hmm. But I find it interesting to solve for that as well. I think that that is actually a worthwhile pursuit. And so I've made that part of my design strategy. What a fascinating conversation. We need more people like Mary Marland. Make sure you listen to her next episode where Mary will share even more of her thought-breaking ideas and advice you can implement right away in your business. 
Stay tuned and talk to you soon. Did you like this episode? If you enjoyed listening to Mindful Business Founder, it will mean a lot to me if you can share this with your friends who are also in the sustainability journey. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or any of your favorite podcast platforms. Bye-bye now.